as we launch into a new year, I think it's appropriate for us to focus on the promises of God. If we think about God's promises, I think we can all nod our heads. Yes, we like the promises of God. We can think of certain aspects, maybe certain portions of his word that we go to in times of difficulty or trial. But maybe in an unguarded moment, we might admit that sometimes we wished God had promised us other things in addition to the promises that he has made to us. For example, we would love to see in the scripture a promise that God would make us healthy, that we would endure and enjoy life with good health. Some of us would love to read promises in God's word that we would have the ideal family and obedient children (laughs) and parents who are not a problem and in-laws who I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. Maybe we wish we found promises from God about being wealthy or having career success or having many friends. You see, sometimes we wish God had promised us maybe some extras or some other things, some other places, some other blessings that we feel like maybe would make our lives better. Maybe our expectations, though, of God, and specifically of God the Son, of Jesus and His work for us, maybe our expectations are not biblical enough. Maybe there's a little too much Marvel in there and not enough Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where we want the superhero, we want quick fixes, and we want happy endings real quick, and and we want our enemies to be defeated. And that's not new. I mean, even back in the early days of the church, they read Matthew 2, and they thought, that's not enough. Isn't there more stuff that super baby Jesus did? And so they actually wrote this, and I'm not making this up. Now, these are a couple hundred years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they actually wrote other stories that, that were about Jesus as a baby that better fit, frankly, the Marvel Universe and, uh, and maybe different expectations about what God would do through Jesus. Uh, one of those is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Uh, there's a few others. Uh, let me just give you a couple of these stories, though, just to give you a, a glimpse into the fact that this is not a new issue, this, this you know, kind of different expectation. There's a, a story written in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas about Jesus and the cloth dyer, where uh, Jesus makes all the clothes accidentally fall into the, the vat, and they're all stained the wrong color. It's like a disaster for the, the guy dyeing the cloth for his business. No problem. Jesus just snaps his fingers and makes them all the right color. Okay, super baby Jesus, right? There you go. Uh, there's the one where uh, Jesus makes, he's with his friends, they're all making clay pigeons, you know, and they're all, you know, having fun with their clay pigeons, and then uh, Jesus makes a clay pigeon, throws it up in the air, and poof, it, you know, flies off, right? Like he's a magician. There's one where uh, Jesus turns his friends into goats. End of story. No, just kidding. And then... And then he, he changes them back. There's, there's actually there's a little more sober one, and I'm surprised this is in the Infancy Gospel, but uh, there's one where actually Jesus had some bullies that were kind of treating him you know, uh, you know, in a bad way, and so he just like, boom, kills them. But then he raised them back to life to teach them a lesson you know, so that they would learn not to bully. Uh, 
Of course, there's one about the trip down to Egypt that Joseph, we're going to read about in this passage in Matthew 2. They just, again, they felt like there wasn't enough information here. We missed a part of the story. And uh, the trip from uh, Bethlehem down to Egypt would have maybe taken 30 days. But uh, in a precursor to the Star Trek technology, Jesus beams the Holy Family down to Egypt. And they make it in like just one day. And I, I share these with you, of course, to, let's be really clear. Those aren't scripture. Okay? They didn't happen. Okay? They're fanciful, imaginative tales. But they're created because, again, sometimes we want something, and when we read the, the scriptures, we don't actually see what we really want. And so we edit, we add to, we change, we adjust. Would we prefer Jesus to be a super baby? Would we prefer Jesus to be a genie in the bottle who can give us exactly what we want, grant us our wishes? Well, here in Matthew 2, 13 to 23, Matthew focuses on how even in his infancy, Jesus fulfills the promises of God to provide for his people. But warning, those promises may not be exactly what you or I would choose. They're They're glorious. But they're not exactly in line with our expectations. These promises may be different than we might want, but they're also better than we can imagine. So let's take a look here at this narrative and and see how it unfolds and and listen to the message of Matthew um, as he describes how how Jesus fulfills the promises of God to his people. So looking at verse 13, uh, again, this is right on the heels in Matthew's narrative of the visit of the Magi. So we're kind of picking picking up right where we left off last week. In verse 13, Matthew writes, after they were gone, it's after the Magi left, right? After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. If you just pause, there are uh, six dreams recorded in the New Testament. Five of them are in Matthew 1 and 2. Four of those are given to Joseph. So what's really interesting about that observation is that God is providing specific guidance for Joseph to lead Mary and Jesus to safety because of the mission of the gospel. So it's just very interesting. So here Joseph is, uh, is given this dream, and in the dream an angel instructs him, gives him these commands, get up, take the child, get out of town, flee to Egypt, and then stay there. So four commands. And then the explanation is given because Herod, Herod the not-so-great, is about to search for the child and kill him. Remember I told you last week Herod was paranoid. He had one of his wives executed and her sons. He was obsessed with his own power and preserving that power. And so when the Magi came and they said, oh yeah, a child's been born who's king of the Jews, he was like, not on my watch, right? So he lies and deceives to try to get them to tell him uh, when and where the, the child was born. He has the general details of Bethlehem and the approximate time of Jesus' birth, but he doesn't have any other details, so he, he will see in a minute he's going he's gonna to take action to try to protect his power and authority. Nonetheless, in verse 14, Joseph responds with faith to the angelic message in his dream. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Joseph obeyed. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt... I called my son. This is the third Old Testament passage that Matthew has quoted in in chapters 1 and 2 and has said this is fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. 
at the bare minimum, and we'll see two more before we're done this morning, at the bare minimum, we see Matthew making a point early in his gospel, not just with the genealogy, but with the narrative where he says, listen, what, what happened with Jesus, this was not plan B, this was not unexpected, this was the fulfillment of the promises that God made in the Old Testament. When we read in the Old Testament about God bringing a deliverer from his people Israel, we should expect those promises to find their fulfillment in Jesus. And even in his infancy, we see these promises fulfilled. Specifically here in verse 15, it's a promise from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now listen, I'm going to take a chance that maybe you're not fresh on your Hosea, all right, theology. But let's just talk about it for a minute. Hosea is not a pleasant ride. Hosea is a prophet who is called to condemn God's people for their failure to worship him. He condemns the people of Israel for their failure to value God and to follow him instead of following the Canaanite gods and goddesses. And so Hosea is a harsh word in many ways, but it's also a word of grace. And it's so interesting because in Hosea 11.1, an initial reading of Hosea would let us know that out of Egypt I called my son is a reference to God rescuing his people. And when, as soon as Hosea says, out of Egypt, I call my son, every Old Testament reader would think back to the Exodus account, that out of Egypt, God rescued his people. Often in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as God's son. So yes, out of Egypt, God rescued his son, the nation of Israel. But that's not all the spirit of God intended to communicate through Hosea 11.1. Because here, God sends Joseph, Mary, and Jesus down to Egypt for protection so that Herod will not execute Jesus as a baby. And as he does so, it fulfills, out of Egypt I called my son. So obviously Matthew says, it's not just out of Egypt I called my nation Israel in the Exodus. Here Matthew says, actually we're thinking about the second Exodus, Exodus 2.0. And as a part of the second exodus, the rescue of people in slavery, Matthew says, no, seriously, out of Egypt, I called my son. That verse takes on actually greater significance when Matthew says, no, the my son there, it's not just the nation of Israel. My son there is the son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who, yes, was born and was uh, in danger of being executed by Herod. And so God sends him down to Egypt for protection. And as he does so, well, he does so to facilitate his grace. If you remember the context of Hosea 11, and God's people didn't get it right, but in Hosea chapter 11, there's a beautiful picture of God's stubborn, sovereign grace. Where God says, I know you've turned your back on me. I know you refuse to worship me. And I know you've given in to temptation so many times. I know it's ugly deep down what's really going on in you. But God says, but I love you. And you can't stop it. You can't stop my grace, my forgiveness. Earlier in Hosea, God describes himself as a lion who's tearing his people to shreds in confrontation. But in Hosea 11, he turns the image around and he says, I'm the roaring lion who, as I roar, calls back my people from exile and from exodus. I call my people back in grace and forgiveness. It's actually a beautiful section of Hosea here because it reminds God's people that though you may have failed, his grace doesn't. And it's a calling to the people to turn to him. You see, 
we learned this morning that Jesus fulfills the promises of God to provide for the people of God. But he does that in some specific ways. First, he does so by providing restoration by his grace. Restoration by his grace. Again, Matthew's not ignorant of the context of Hosea. And when he says all this is fulfilled in Christ, he's saying you need to look at Jesus and you need to see in Jesus, not just that God protected him, but he protected him so that he could restore us, so that he could rescue us. He protected him so that he would be the means through which his grace was made available to, yes, those who failed. Jesus provides restoration by his grace. The Exodus imagery It actually is very prominent in this section of Matthew. And as we think about God rescuing Israel, his son, out of Egypt, and as we think about God sending Jesus down to Egypt for protection and then bringing him back to rescue us, we see some parallels in the mission. For example, through Moses, God rescues his people Israel out of Egypt from slavery. Did you know that without Jesus as our Savior, we're still slaves? If Jesus hadn't survived Herod's attempt to get rid of him, if we didn't have the provision of the Messiah, we would still be slaves. Not literally slaves, but actually slaves to sin, right? Slaves to sin, slaves to idolatry, shackled to the gods that we worship, the gods of money and the gods of success and the gods of peer approval and the gods of pleasure and, and gods of power or whatever it is, right? We'd be shackled to those gods. And yet, out of Egypt, I called my son. As Moses was used by God to rescue Israel from Egypt, part of that rescue was being rescued from the idolatry that was so prevalent in Egypt. And remember that the plagues in the Exodus narrative are designed to show the gods of Egypt are a joke and there's only one true God and it's the God of Israel, right? And so just as that was true in the first Exodus, it's also true in the second Exodus. Without Jesus as our Savior, we would still be worshiping false gods. Again, slaves, right? Slaves to sin, but specifically, we'd be slaves to these false gods, the gods of our land. And it's tricky in our day and age because they don't really call them gods. I mean, some of us might long for simpler times when they actually just said, this is the God we worship. You're like, no, I worship Jesus, not that God or goddess. But now it's different. Now our our gods are, are basically hidden in the passions and pursuits of our culture. Your God gets delivered in an Amazon box. Your God is sold at the Apple store possibly. Your God might be streaming on Netflix. Your God might be your bank account, your degree, your position at the office. And without Jesus as Savior, we wouldn't see them for false gods. We'd just be like everybody else. But just like in the original Exodus, when God uses Moses to rescue his people Israel, right? not just out of slavery, not just from idolatry, but he rescues them to give them actual redemption. Without Jesus, we would have no hope of redemption. There's this tone in the Hosea quote that just says, by the way, if you're someone who has turned away from the Lord, 
Yeah, your sin is ugly, but don't forget, man, he's a roaring lion. And when he roars, it's his grace that's at work. And his sovereign grace isn't beyond you. Without Jesus, we have no hope of redemption, but because of Jesus, because out of Egypt I called my son, God's sovereign grace is available for all of us. I have no doubt that Matthew intends for us to perhaps take a moment to just reflect and say, okay, hold on. Am I that person who has turned to the Lord, who has heard that lion's roar? Or am I still stubbornly saying no to him and saying yes to myself, yes to my sin, yes to my idols? Jesus does fulfill the promises of God to provide for the people of God. First, he does so by providing restoration by his grace. The Exodus, though, isn't the only Old Testament event that foreshadows Jesus' work. And we turn now to really, it's, it's a tough part of this story, but we need to look at it and see what God is doing even in the midst of really a despicable moment. Watch verse 16. Remember, Herod the not-so-great is really frustrated, and so he's, he's ready to do something about this problem. So verse 16, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Just so you know, this is fully in line with the character of Herod that we have from extra-biblical sources. We know Herod was big on mass executions. He was big on protecting his power. This is not unusual. The population for Bethlehem at that time would have been one to 2,000 people. You're talking about, on average, 10 to 20 boys between the age of you know, two and, and being newborn. So you're talking about between 10 and 20 uh, boys, likely. And Herod brutally gives these orders to execute these, these sons. But notice verses 17 and 18. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. You see, there's two kind of Old Testament backgrounds that are influencing Matthew here as he describes this, this despicable thing that Herod does. The first, of course, is if we remember back to the Exodus story, you remember when Moses was born, there was that issue of uh, the, the Pharaoh of the day saying, ah, we have too many, too many Israelites, we need to kind of stem the population. So there was the, the killing of the infants even in Moses' day. And so there's kind of a, a foreshadowing there to this moment. But Matthew pushes beyond that Exodus analogy, and he goes on now to what's an exile analogy. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Again, this is now the fourth passage in Matthew 1 and 2 that, that Matthew says, this is fulfilled in the infancy of Jesus. Specifically, though, this is a moment when the prophet Jeremiah talks about this mourning that, that uh, would happen in this place called Ramah. This is a geographic association and a theological association. So let me show you the map first. Why? Because it's a happy new year. You know I love you, but here's your map for the new year. Uh, okay, so, so here's Bethlehem, all right? Remember that this is where Jesus has been born. They have since fled down to uh, Egypt. 
Here's Jerusalem, six miles to the north, and then you have this other town called Ramah. Ramah was significant because somewhere between Bethlehem and Ramah, the uh, patriarch Isaac's wife, Rachel, was buried. So there's a lot of, pat- listen, if you can just work with me here, there's a lot of patriarchal mojo in, uh, in this area. And so uh, a lot of little, little sites are significant in, in that way. The picture of Rama, though, and Rachel, it, it does have some association with Bethlehem, specifically because of Jeremiah 31. And what Jeremiah says is, there was a voice heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. It was Rachel. Rachel here is referenced because she was one of the wives, again, of the patriarchs, Isaac's wife. She was a mother of Israel. And Jeremiah is actually talking about the exile, about Israel being taken, not to Egypt this time, but this time into Babylon, into exile. And he says, Rachel's weeping for her children because they sinned and sinned and sinned and they were rebellious and they were rebellious and they were rebellious. And so God has punished them by taking them into exile, sending them into exile. And so she, she wept for her children. She refused to be consoled because there are no more. There is a, a tradition that, uh, again, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem or near Bethlehem. So you have this connection between Ramah and Bethlehem through Rachel. And Matthew says there's more to it than just that. The fact is, when Herod kills these boys, Matthew, he compassionately thinks of those mourning mothers. And he says, it's, it's so ugly and horrible what Herod did. But what Herod did is just one expression of the ugliness of sin. And as Matthew thinks of it, the Spirit draws his mind to Jeremiah 21 where it's not just the unjust killing of infants, which is an issue, but really it's all sin, all rebellion against God. And as Jeremiah says, there's Rachel weeping for her children because there they go. Matthew says, that's exactly it. There's the problem. The problem is sin and rebellion, and it's not a new problem. And the mourning that was heard in Bethlehem, yes, that that was foreshadowed in Jeremiah 31, but that's not the end of the story because, once again, Matthew knew the context. And if you keep reading in Jeremiah 31, what does he start to talk about? He starts to talk about rescue from exile, a return from exile, that the weeping isn't the end of the story, that there's joy that comes later. It's not an easy truth. It's a difficult truth, but it's a bold truth. It's a bold statement of God's sovereignty in the midst of difficulty and the reality of sin in our world. Jeremiah says, this is not the end of the story. And when Matthew says, this weeping part is fulfilled in Bethlehem, as these families mourned, and, and there's nothing that can be said to make what Herod did right or acceptable, no way. It was fundamentally wrong, and maybe one of the most heinous expressions of sin that we could think of. But that's not the end of the story. Because... The arrival of Jesus doesn't just bring the Exodus 2.0, it also brings the return from exile 2.0. That God is still rescuing his people, even after unspeakable hardship and difficulty. Jesus fulfills the promises of God for the people of God. Here to provide hope from his sovereignty. To provide hope from his sovereignty. We need to come at it directly this morning and just recognize that sometimes because of sin, there is weeping. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's like this where where people do horrible things and we experience it. Maybe it's tragedy, emotional pain. But whatever it is, if we take 
Matthew 2, 16 to 18 seriously, if we take Jeremiah 31 seriously, we must acknowledge that there is hope even if we suffer because God is sovereign. Again, that weeping is not the end of the story. If you're here this morning, I know so many of us have gone through very difficult times in the last year. You need to know that your hurt and your suffering is not the end of your story. That God is faithful. That yes, he is sovereign. And although we could never answer the question, why did God allow fill in the blank? By the way, we could say that so many times. What we can say is we know that God is at work. When Matthew quotes Jeremiah here, he's not saying, oh, wow, this is out of control and and there's no hope for the weeping. He's saying, no, on the contrary, this fulfills what the prophet talked about. And again, it's not the end of the fulfillment of prophecy. That here, yes, God rescued his people back literally from the exile, but that's a picture of this greater work that God is rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from their exile. You may be hopeless this morning, but this actually section of Matthew says there is hope for you and for me. Now maybe, maybe your greatest suffering is yet to come. We don't know what 2023 holds for us. But as you face the ups and downs of the coming year, just ask the question, do I... Do I depend on the provision of hope from God's sovereignty to see me through the day? Or am I trying to make it happen myself? The suffering, the pain, the hurt, the loss, the despair, all of that must give way. It must give way to redemption and to peace. It wasn't just true in Jeremiah 31. It wasn't just true in Matthew 2. But it's true for us today. Maybe there's a side note here just to talk about, again, the ugliness of sin in our own lives and specifically in our culture. You know, the slaughter of children is is just that. It's just horrible, however you want to think about it. But we live in a culture, and just to acknowledge it for what it is, we live in a culture that says it's acceptable to slaughter children as long as they are just shy of birth, right? And I don't care what a politician says to you, that is never okay. Right? And, and here's, in this section of the Word of God, God's making his view on it very clear, that the, these children are precious. And what Herod has done is absolutely despicable. But God's grace abounds even in our brokenness. And so there's hope here, even as we live in a very broken nation that has a very skewed moral compass. The fact is we're broken people, and we have skewed moral compasses. That man, Jesus provides hope for us from his sovereignty even in the midst of suffering. That's not the only Old Testament passage Matthew has in mind. Watch verse 19. Again, this is kind of geographically oriented, but watch where the narrative concludes here at the end of chapter 2. Watch verse 19. Matthew writes, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, let's just pause there, verse 23. Let me show you this one on a map just so you get it in your minds. Uh, Here's the, here's the picture of them 
traveling from Egypt up to Nazareth. So there's Bethlehem. They head down to Egypt for protection. Again, Herod dies. Herod, the the not-so-great, died in 4 B.C. Because he uh, targeted infants up to two years old, Jesus could have been born anywhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Sorry for the dates messing up for you there, but so be it, okay? So they they didn't quite get it right. Uh, But so basically, he was born between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Herod the not-so-great dies in 4 B.C. His three sons take over. The son who took over the area of Bethlehem, he was kind of like father, like son. He was terrible. And Joseph had a sense of that. So he's like, we're not going back to Bethlehem, even though it was a family town and they had a spot there already. It's like, we're, gonna, we're going back up to, to uh, the Galilee area. So he takes uh, Mary and Jesus to this little town, Nazareth, okay? What was so significant about Nazareth in the first century? Absolutely nothing, okay? It's in the Sussex County of Israel, okay? <laughs> if that analogy works out, Okay? It's it's there's just there's just not much there. Okay, the big town was Sephoris, and it was like five miles away. Sephoris was a big town. Nazareth was not a big town. In fact, it's up on the side of a hill. There's it's it's uh, there's not much to it. The only thing it was actually known for was it was where a Roman a small Roman garrison was stationed there to kind of monitor the traffic. And so the only thing about Nazareth was there were Romans there. It's super small, not important. In fact, as I'm sure you're aware of, there was an ancient proverb from the first century about Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The rhetorical answer to that is no. No, nothing good comes from Nazareth. And so Joseph takes, and maybe he had family connections there. That's where they were before. Anyway, they go back to Nazareth because it's a little bit safer of a spot. Of course, God guides them in that. But notice verse 23 again and what Matthew says. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, that's your fifth statement by Matthew. This fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. But this one's a little different. This one, it's not a singular prophet, and he doesn't name the prophet. This time it's plural. He says, uh, this happened to fulfill what was spoken through, and if you read carefully there, the prophets. Well, you could scour the Old Testament looking for a passage where the Messiah will be called a Nazarene and you won't find one. There isn't one. And so everybody kind of scratches their head at this. They go, what's going on? There's in Isaiah 11, he's called the branch and branch is spelled kind of close to Nazareth in Hebrew. So it's like maybe, but maybe not. not it's just, that's kind of iffy. All right. But I think there's actually a very, a much better answer in the plural prophets here that helps us especially when we understand the reputation of Nazareth. Nazareth isn't great. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. In fact, to live in Nazareth could be viewed as a punishment, maybe, in some times. Uh, When we read the prophets, we do find out that the Messiah, well, that his ministry won't always be like a superhero. That his ministry will be marked by suffering. That his ministry will be marked by rejection. His ministry will be marked by people looking at him and and despising him and saying, that can't be right. He can't be the Messiah. And when we read in the Old Testament, we read that the Messiah, his ministry will culminate in his death. Nobody saw that coming. Now, if they read carefully, Zechariah 9 to 14, you get a clear picture of this, that the Messiah will suffer. In Psalm 22, we know that this psalm is a picture of later the suffering of the Messiah as Jesus quotes from it on the cross. We read Isaiah 53, 
I mean, it's black and white in Isaiah 53, where the, the servant, the, the Messiah of Israel will suffer, will be despised and rejected. He'll be given as that substitutionary sacrifice. And so probably what Matthew has in mind here in verse 23, in the fulfillment of the prophets in this deal with Nazareth, is that when Jesus is taken to Nazareth by Joseph, it fulfills this, this reality that the Messiah, you just won't see him coming. His, his expected ministry and his actual ministry were very different because people expected him to be the conquering hero and to drive out Rome and to turn clay pigeons to real pigeons and do all these crazy things. But in reality, Jesus' ministry was to suffer and to die. Again, fulfilling the promises of God. This time, to provide protection through his suffering. Jesus fulfills the promise of God to provide protection through his suffering. If the Exodus 2.0 is going to happen, if the return from exile 2.0 is going to happen, the Messiah would have to suffer. He would have to pay the penalty for our failures. And so it's so interesting that here the father protects the son through giving Joseph these dreams and sending them down to Egypt and calling them out of Egypt and then having them go up to Nazareth. He protects the son. But there would be a day when the father would not protect the son. Why? So that we could be protected. So that we could be rescued. You see, this is what the Messiah's ministry is all about. And as we read the the Gospel of Matthew, it points to the climax. The climax is when Jesus, the Messiah, suffers and dies in our place. And that's not the end of the story. Of course, Jesus conquers death and resurrection. And as he does so, he commissions his disciples and he says, Go, spread the message. I died in your place. I rose from the dead. Make disciples of all nations. Why? Because as he suffered, he protects us. Of course, Matthew will explain the significance of that on throughout the gospel, and we'll learn so much as we walk through it together. But this is a confrontation of faulty expectations. Again, we could circle back to that idea of thinking of Jesus as our genie in the bottle. And if we give money to the church and we show up to church and we you know, kind of watch our swearing and all that and behave okay, that he'll give us what we want. That is such an inadequate view of the ministry of Jesus and what he calls us to. Jesus does fulfill the promises of God for the people of God, but he does so by suffering in our place, by rising from the dead, and then calling us to new life. Yes, we have a Messiah here who is a refugee down in Egypt. We have a Messiah who is at risk of being killed by Herod. We have a Messiah who's from Nazareth. Yes. We read on about a Messiah who's the friend of tax collectors, and prostitutes. A Messiah who cared for the sick and the untouchable. A Messiah who invested in the bottom level of society, who scandalously talked to women. A Messiah who suffered and a Messiah who was crucified. You see, Jesus provides protection for us through his suffering. Now, you could ask the question, am I okay with that Jesus? Meaning, am I willing to put my faith in the Jesus who is, not a Jesus of my imagination or of cultural expectation? Jesus was despised so we could be accepted. 
Jesus was beaten so we could be embraced. He was struck so that we could be healed. He was treated as guilty so we could be declared righteous. He was judged so that we could be forgiven. And he died and rose so that we could rise with him. This is the ministry of the Messiah. This is why there is good news. And it's just, again, it's such an appropriate way to start our year because you need to know that God has made promises. He's made promises in his word, especially in the Old Testament, that we see fulfilled in Jesus. But don't let those promises fool you. They may not be what you expect. They're greater. Because if we were writing the story, we would mess it up. Right? We would, we would blow it. We would force it into our version of what we want it to be. But God says, I know better. I know exactly what you need. You need the Exodus 2.0. You need the return from exile 2.0. You need this rescue. And there's only one way to get it. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I just want to encourage you. It's because of his, his sovereign grace and his love for you that he was willing to be from Nazareth, that he was willing to suffer and die in your place. And others may love you, others may tolerate you, but nobody loves you the way Jesus does. It's a new year. Maybe this is the opportunity for you to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I like Joseph in this narrative. Grammatically, He gets these commands. It's kind of interesting when you read it. He gets these commands. He just does them. Uh, Joseph's like Othniel and Judges. No drama. Just get it done. Let's just get it done. Like like God spoke, I listened. Like that's what was on his headstone. You know, like that's it. Like just did it. I'm like, you want to see a disciple? Here's a disciple right here. This guy. He's like, it wasn't complicated. God said move to Egypt. He didn't go, eh, not so much. I I don't like the food in Egypt. You know, whatever. He's like, okay, we're going. I mean, there's a beautiful simplicity to that. Listen, I don't know what your goals are spiritually for the year, right? And I know this is the day of the launch of our Bible reading plan, you know, things and all of that, right? Absolutely, go get them. You're going to fail. It's okay. Just keep going. Just keep going, all right? It's, it's okay. God's grace abounds, okay? Maybe, maybe you should just put in your frame of reference for what does a disciple look like? Joseph who, as he heard the word of God, he didn't argue, he didn't offer an alternate suggestion, and he certainly didn't complain. He just went. Got up, took Mary and Jesus, and they went. I wonder, is your life marked by that kind of simple, faith-driven obedience? Now, sometimes we just, I think we just get too worked up about approving what God has called us to, and really we just need to obey. He just called us to follow him. Not, not so we can earn his favor, but because he's the roaring lion. We already have his favor in Jesus. I was blessed to spend just a little time with some saints from Egypt a few years back. And they're wonderful people. They love this narrative. Can I just tell you? Because in this, and it's true. They're like, the father sent the son of Egypt, son to Egypt, so we could protect him right? And I, I, the Christians in Egypt are proud of that, and I think rightly so. Like, take that mantle, you know? Like, honestly, go with it. And when Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son, it's not about Egypt. It's about this second exodus. 
when my friend Spurgeon was preaching on this passage, he said, and I think rightly so, he said, there's not just a calling of the son out of Egypt, there's a calling to the sons and daughters out of Egypt. He said it this way, they are called out from amongst the surrounding race of rebels, and when the call comes, none can hold them back. I wonder this morning, is that you? Have you been called out of Egypt to follow the Son? Have you been called to trust in the promises of God that Jesus himself fulfills? Are you buoyed by his restoration through grace and his hope that comes from his sovereignty and the protection he provides for us through his suffering? Does that drive you? And if it doesn't, it should. So let's pray together now and let's ask God to help us respond in faith to his word because he did indeed call his son out of Egypt. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for the theology, Lord, the, the way the exodus and the return from exile and other aspects of the Old Testament, Lord, point forward. They foreshadow the ministry of the Son. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that even as an infant, you were fulfilling the promises of the Father. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us as we see in this passage a confrontation again of sin and rebellion and idolatry, Lord, and we pray that you would lead us in repentance, that we would confess our sins and failures with confidence because of your grace. We thank you for the message in Hosea 11 that you are the roaring lion and that your sovereign grace is unstoppable. We praise you for that. Lord, we pray, especially for those of us who are suffering and for those of us who will suffer this year, we pray that you would help us to suffer well by faith, that we would honor you as we go through the inevitable difficulties of living in a broken world. And we thank you that our suffering, our tears, our mourning, they are only temporary. Lord, we confess they are very hard for us, but they're temporary. So help us to walk by faith through those trials and difficulties that are coming. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for being willing to be from Nazareth, to suffer, to go to the cross for us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to adjust our expectations, that we would not project onto you the image that our culture demands or that we would demand, but instead to be recipients of your word and to see that this Jesus is the Jesus we need. The one who is from Nazareth, the one who is the friend of sinners and the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead for us. Lord, help us to respond by faith. Lord, lead us in faith-driven obedience. We ask that we would glorify you this coming year and even today as we leave. And we pray in your name. Amen.